Today's episode of Vice Versa, we're talking about Mercedes' upcoming 600-mile EV and their plans about going all-electric by 2030, the truth about how green EVs truly are, Toyota's hydrogen debacle, EV towing, and more. And as usual, I'm joined by Ricky Rory. How are you doing, Ricky? Doing good, Matt. I was in Eugene, Oregon, actually, meeting with Archimoto, so I had a chance to have some fun with all their cool variants of the FUV and had a really good trip and got in late yesterday, but I'm back and uh, had some fun. How about you? How you doing? Pretty good. I've had a pretty quiet week. I just put out a video about floating cities, of all things. I don't know, it caught my eye when I was reading about it, and I thought there were some cool technologies at play, so I wanted to make a video on it. What about you? Yeah, so I'm a little bit behind on my video this week, but it'll be going out tomorrow and it is on the sterling engine so that was actually one of the really commonly requested new videos that i'd heard about matt and i both have the incredible pleasure of having such a smart audience of people who are always recommending and suggesting such great topics so honestly we could just scour our comment section and, and <laughs> yeah. just have information and ideas for days so just a thank you to, to, to all of you guys for for constantly being awesome yeah no no kidding it's like the audience is smarter than me way smarter than me. <laughs> it's really nice. It's a, it's a good position to be in. It really is. Yeah. All right. So the first story is Mercedes-Benz teasing a super efficient electric car with over 1,000 kilometers or 620 miles of range. And it's shorter than they previously announced because they made an announcement back in October of last year where they announced that it was going to have 1,200 kilometers or about 750 miles of range. And the idea is that they're targeting a single dif- uh, single digit figure for their kilowatt hours per 100 kilometers or about six miles per kil- kilowatt hour um, at normal highway driving speeds, which is a very aggressive target. And if they can pull it off, it's going to be amazing. Uh, but all of this is about efficiency and they have a dedicated engineering team that's working on the effort. And what they talked about in this announcement, this update about it, is that the reveal will be next year. So 2022, they're going to reveal it. But it is just a concept car. It's not going to be a production car. And so their their idea is that the technologies they come up with for this concept car will trickle down into their different platforms they're going to be releasing over the next five to 10 years. So for me, there was a little bit of a, a meh to that because like, <laughs> I'm not a fan of concept cars at all. But I do love the fact that they are investing a lot of time, money, and effort into the R&D around these technologies and these efficiencies. And even though it's going into a concept card, the idea is that these technologies can then be sprinkled into their other platforms. So what, what's your take on, on this news? Yeah, the, the first, my first thought was kind of to your point, this is a concept car. So when you have to dial back the expectations or the range numbers on a concept car, you're not even gonna make, what does that <laughs> even mean? <laughs> it's just a, <laughs> an idea on paper. Um, okay. so. It is really ambitious, and to put it into perspective, you mentioned that to achieve this, so they mentioned six miles per kilowatt hour, which would be the same size battery as a Model S, about 100 kilowatt hours. It's not like they're just ramming a lot of batteries into the car. They're trying to go further with each kilowatt hour of battery storage. To put that in perspective, our Tesla Model 3s do about four kilowatt hours. So we're talking like 50% better than that. And that, it sounds... I'm I'm trying to I'm I'm struggling to figure out where that can come from. So really the the drag of the car, the the wind resistance as you drive through the air is a big part of it. From that picture, that picture did look really great. The 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 front headlights kind of yeah, it kind of reminded me of like a McLaren, especially that light bar and everything. So maybe it's a really low down kind of a coupe you know, you got to get rid of the frontal area or the drag coefficient both really. 
but you know, Tesla's at around 0.2 today. I, I, I don't see them getting much lower than that. Maybe they've got some tricks up their sleeve. And then there's the subsystems, like all, you, know, you should go all LED for the lighting, you should have a heat pump, you should do everything you can to just lower the consumption of energy. But even with all that said, I, I have no idea how they'd get to six kilo hours per mile. Um, but they are Mercedes, they're a billion dollar company and they, they have a lot of R&D. So that's the cool part when all these companies start to figure stuff out. And if they make that car and it does go 600 miles, um, I think they're going to have no problem selling it. And being Mercedes, it could be $150,000. They'll still sell because it'll be faster than all their AMG cars. And it'll be more luxurious than anything else. It'll be quiet and no vibrations. And it'll go 600 miles, which I don't think their gas cars do. It'd be a win all around. They can sell for 200000 And I bet you they'd sell everyone they make. Yeah, it's like, I, I get why they do concept cars because it gets attention. It gets news press cycles we're talking about it but at the same time for me they could have come out and just talked about we have this dedicated engineering team and the goal is to hit x y and z and right now we think we can probably hit x y and z and we're planning on putting this out into our new platforms over the next five years it's like they could have talked about it in that fashion without having to design a crazy concept car that's never going to actually be sold or see the light of day or anything like that so to me, there's a heck of a lot of marketing spin, and that's the part about this that really turns me off. But when you dig into what they're trying to do, I'm, I give them a lot of credit, and I hope they can pull at least some of it off and that some of this technology starts to come to fruition. The one thing I, I do appreciate that they did is gave us some of those numbers because they could have just said 600 miles of range mm-hmm. and left it open, in which case you don't know. You have two variables. How far can you go and how many clock you know, code hours of batteries do you have? But at least now with that number, we can help pin that down. So that is good for you. I'm glad they did that. When companies don't do that and just leave it open-ended, it literally means nothing. It could just be that you stuck way more batteries in and car gets heavier. There's other problems and stuff. But yeah, uh, I hope they do it. They are Mercedes. They kind of invented the car. <laughs> I think they could do it if anyone could. I'm hoping... Well, the next story ties into that a little Directly. bit. Directly. Uh, I think this uh, this is a good segue to jump right into it. But the next story is about Mercedes and how they are finally uh, doing what it, seemingly every car company is doing. And they're announcing their date to sell their last internal combustion engine car, which is going to be 2030. So really, when I think about how Mercedes has, has fared the last couple of years, They've been losing out market share to Tesla in terms of the C-Class and uh, the E-Class, at least, and maybe even the S-Class to the Model S. But for people who are trying to buy an economy car, if you're in in the market for an economy car, EVs are probably a little bit of a stretch right now. uh, And I I completely understand that. But if you're in the market for a Mercedes C-Class or a 3 Series BMW, an Audi A4, well, you're right into Tesla territory. And honestly, if you pull up next to your friend who has a Tesla and he's way faster than you, his car is more reliable, it doesn't have any moving parts, it starts to become like you're driving the dinosaur. So people in that crowd, uh, you know, that class of buyer, are starting to move. And so I'm actually surprised that Mercedes and other companies haven't made this decision sooner because they're going to be pretty obsolete pretty soon. But you got to remember also that Europe has much more stringent rules and so they're going to be moving to electrification much quicker. So really, the, the key to this is that they're launching all new platform architectures. I believe it's three new platforms. So figure something small, crossover kind of a size, maybe like a full-size S-Class plus the SUV version or something like that. So this isn't like they're going to build one new thing. They're, they're going to go with platforms. You know, we've always talked about 
how much you invest in architecture speaks to your plan. Are you, are you trying to just make one compliance card or are you trying to really have a strategy where you can share cost and complexity and bring down uh, some of those kinds of hurdles? So Mercedingly, uh, Mercedes does seem to be on that wagon. So yeah, three electric only architectures. They, they mentioned 200 gigawatt hours of, of capacity between their partners and stuff, which sounds like a lot, but it's really not that much, especially when you consider what Tesla's up to. But these are early days. I'm sure some of these numbers are going to ramp very quickly. And, well, they have to by 2030 if they want to have a shot. So I'm happy to hear this uh, announcement. But to your point, it does feel like it's marketing fluff until it isn't. Mm-hmm. So we have to just wait and see how things progress. Are they going to be continuing to invest in ICE R&D? Are they going to continue to, you know, th- those are the kinds of questions. If they get a jump and they really take things seriously next year. They don't have to wait, right? Or it could be sell gas cars till 2028 and we'll talk about it then, right? That's the problem with such a long target. We don't know the nuance of what they're going to do, but what do you think? I think I'm a little more optimistic than you are, partly because next year they're going to have at least one EV in each segment that they sell already. And so these three new segments are going to be brand new EV only platforms. So it's kind of they're already on their way to doing this and delivering it. The, like you raised the giant question is, can they deliver? That's the giant question. So it's like they have plans. Some of them are going to start happening next year. We're going to start to see how those sales go. But the question is, will they be able to meet demand? Will they be able to supply enough cars? Will they actually put some of their backing behind selling those initial cars? And will they build, actually be able to build out all these gigafactories they're planning on building out? It's like, to me, it's like, that's kind of, for me, like the litmus test. It's like, okay, they've got two gigafactories built and they're building two more. It's like when they when we start to see that kind of a thing, you know that they're actually really taking it seriously and they're starting to ramp things up. Um, so for me, it's just like you. Will they deliver? I'm cautiously optimistic because it seems like they're a little further ahead on this than some of the other automakers in the world, which we'll be talking about <laughs> a little later. But there's, there's a lot to, I think, be hopeful for around Mercedes-Benz. One argument that we've probably both heard on our channels and stuff when we talk about Tesla and others is that as soon as the OEMs like Mercedes and VW and when these guys decide to flip the switch and start building EVs, that it's going to be game over. That hasn't been the case at all. Everybody's been struggling with stuff like software. The ID4 was delayed for months because of software, the ID3 as well. Um, when I drove the Mach-E, the, the the mapping for the throttle and the brake is really rough compared to what Tesla's feels like. If you've driven a Model 3 or a Model S, they have the perfect throttle mapping. When you hit the accelerator pedal, the sense of, of power output and the way it feels is absolutely perfection. The Mach-E was really coggy and it felt like it was trying to figure out what was going on. And I actually met with Kyle. He runs out-of-spec motoring and he does a lot more hardcore car testing than either of us do. And he was the first person I, I, I talked to who also mentioned that. And he got kind of got into specifics about the motors they've decided on and how they've, they've struggled. But these are billion-dollar car makers that have been making cars for 100 years. And the argument has always been that they could make an EV, they just don't want to. That's not true. There's yeah. a lot that goes into it. And that's why our last story about Mercedes and the six miles per kilowatt hour is really interesting because that's probably going to be where Tesla's lead is going to be the biggest at first. They've already built a car that's really good, and now they're optimizing, optimizing, lowering lowering the consumption of other components and subsystems. So 
if Mercedes does hit that figure, that they'd be leapfrogging right to the front, which is what people have been saying they'll do. But so far, no one has done. Um, yeah. Including the EQS, which is a cool car, but there's there's miles to go for sure. Yeah. Next story we can jump into is a study dispels the myth that electric cars pollute as much as gas-powered cars due to dirty grid electricity. And I, this is, I love this topic so much. I actually did a video about three years ago now about EV myths. And this study is obviously the most recent one, but there was a study done by the University of Concerned Scientists back in, I think, 2015 that hit on the same exact point that what they talked about in this report. And essentially what they bring up is that uh, <laughs> the old, it's an oldie but a goodie, people saying that EVs, you know, you're charging it from electricity that was generated by coal, so it's just as dirty as a gas car. And also EVs are dirtier to manufacture up front because it, there's more resources and more uh, output from manufacturing battery packs, which is true. But where I think people lose the thread is that over the life cycle of that car, it comes out way way ahead of gas cars. And this chart alone, it kind of um, does a great job illustrating this point where you can see from, and this is like basically a wells to, a wells to wheels analysis. So it's the whole life cycle of the car from manufacturing it to using it for its entire lifespan. And you can see how much these, this like teal color right here is how much gasoline the car is using and how much emissions it's putting out compared to what a battery electric does over the lifespan. So you can see that the manufacturing process of the BEV up front is a little higher than a gas car, but over the life cycle of the entire car, it comes out way ahead. And if you're curious about what these like little lines are on this, on some of these BEV bars, it's the difference between what policies are currently planned for energy generation, for cleaning up the grid, versus what the Paris Accords is basically requiring countries to do. So it's kind of the the range of where it's expected to be. So if people hit the Paris Accords, it would be at the lower end of the line. If they don't hit the Paris Accords, they'll be at the upper end of the line. So it's kind of like kind of a fudge factor for where those calculations are. We need to get this information out more and more because there's still this pervasive belief that uh, EVs charged from a coal-powered grid are dirty, and they're actually not. They still come out way ahead. And going back to the University of Concerned Scientists, they actually have a thing on their website where you can actually pl plug in your zip code, the model of the uh, electric car that you're looking at, and it will show you the life cycle uh, analysis of that very specific car in your region based on the power sources in your region to show you where it's going to fall on the output compared to a gasoline car. And I just love this tool because this is a simple way of if you live like down the south where it's 100% coal, you could still plug in your information here and get very a very accurate idea as to what the output would be for you specifically. So what's your take on this? Can we, first of all, that is such a cool website. Let's make sure to link that in the description so people yeah. can pull it up. It's that kind of visualization that really helps drive this point home. You and I have probably both gotten this comment, I'm going to say 5,000 times over the last yes. couple of years yes. about how your, your EV is just a gas, a, a coal powered car. First of all, people don't realize is coal is increasingly kind of dead. They're they're really getting shut down and we're moving away from it. But when I did my research, I linked uh, I linked a there's a link I made to a video that I covered this on. And in my research, the dirtiest grid was West Virginia in the U.S. anyway, where they have a I think it's over 90 percent coal based um, uh, supply. But like, for example, in California, 
it's 40% renewable already today, which is part of, you know, part of why this argument is kind of a, it could go a long ways, but that article, the link that you have to the calculator can really help you understand where you live. But the bottom line, like Matt said, is EVs are so efficient. Even if you took coal to generate electricity, when you do that on a huge, large scale power plant, that's way more efficient than burning gas in your little rinky-dink ice engine. And also that happens in one site. Who's to say that you couldn't introduce a carbon capture, do something else there? Um, I recently was in a rental car, which made me really appreciate my Tesla's (laughs) cabin air filters because I don't get the smell of gasoline anymore from the road. But we were sitting in traffic and there was this truck just spewing out pollution. And this, I was in a Smart 4 too. Um, terrible car, terrible car, especially the gas version. I've heard the electric version is better. But um, when I was in that car, I could ju- I was getting a headache from the whiff and the fumes of all that gasoline. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of little moving pieces to this, but I'm really glad that people are starting to understand that these stupid talking points are not even close. Mm-hmm. EVs are so efficient. And that's kind of the, the underlying thesis behind my video about towing. Part of it is like EVs are so freaking efficient that any changes to the environment are really impactful. Whereas like a gas car is so wasteful, you go a little faster or you start towing something. Those are minute changes in regard to how much of that energy is just being wasted to the <laughs> gas car. So yep. um, this is a this is a really great point. And if anybody has questions like sound off, we can we can loop around if there's any like questions or concerns that people have. But I think it's pretty clear. And people always talk about I always joke about this, Matt. People become the biggest environmentalists when they talk about solar panels and EVs. <laughs> yes. like no one's ever cared so much about the mining of nickel until we talk about electric vehicles. Like, how about the drilling and fracking and mining and shipping and piping of gasoline? Like, yeah, you, you understand how much we waste before it even reaches your car? How much pollution has already been made? Forget your car burning it. And you're just constantly burning it up. Um, and it can't be bizarre, man. You're burning that fuel. It's gone forever. You've put it in the atmosphere. At the end of my car's life cycle, that battery pack can be recycled to make more batteries to go back into a new car. It's like you, you can't do that with gasoline. Once it's burned, point. it's gone. So it's like there's the argument when you just start to pick it apart, it just falls apart so quickly. I know. I'm really glad you, we, we, have that, we, have that, we have that story and we'll be sure to put a link to that calculator. I think that could really be illuminating for a lot of people. Yep. The next story is an interesting one. So Toyota's Subsidiary Woven Planet acquires Lyft's Level 5. Level 5 is the name of their self-driving tech, uh, their self-driving division. And, you know, when I read this story, I started to think, I've heard about Woven something or other. turns out Toyota has this kind of, these various subsidiaries, which is common, right? Alphabet owns Google and and, and, um, Waymo and some of these other companies. But, like, they have, it's Woven Core, Woven Alpha, Woven Capital, and Woven Planet. And... Clearly, one of the benefits you get to have when you're really big is you don't really have to be great. You can just buy the people that are proving to be great, right? Facebook buys Instagram. People kept saying, oh, Instagram might become the new Facebook. No, it won't because Facebook will just buy it uh, before they start to become profitable. So I got this feeling, you know, is Toyota secretly out there just killing it? And one day they're going to come out with a press release and go, oh, by the way, We've been working on this whole thing all along, and here's a fully electric, thousand-mile range, solid-state battery, self-driving EV <laughs> that we've been... Or are they just kind of shooting in the dark and, and, and really not getting anywhere? 
I, I'm torn on where I fall with this because I don't know how far level five really got. Here's some pictures of some of the autonomous um, mark, uh, marketing material and what the visualization looks like from the computer. Um, it's, I, I would imagine that they're going to be aggregating a lot of other stuff. They have purchased other companies as well. And I think they're hoping to have some sort of a succinct self-driving platform. But I, what I think they're going to find is this isn't something that's easily pieced together. A lot of these tech stacks don't talk to each other or they're not going to work well. So you can't just go around like, you know, kind of gluing pieces together. But we, we'll wait and see, I guess. It could have also been kind of an aqua hire, an acquisition hire, where they're going to get all these really smart engineers and scientists who've been working in this space for a while. But um, we shall see. The other company I mentioned was Carmera, is the other U.S.-based uh, spatial AI company that they've acquired. So they're making moves. I don't know if they're good moves or right moves, but they are making moves. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, I, I do think this was an aqua hire because when you look at the details, it was they with the acquisition of this company, they got 300 engineers, research scientists, and mobility specialists. So to me, that says they're trying to beef up their technology portfolio and get an acquire to get all those, that expertise over to help them push their technology further forward. Um, and you brought this up in a previous episode when we talked about full self-driving, about how with all the consolidation in the industry, you were saying deep pockets are going to win. That's where it's all going to go. So it's like you got places like maybe Uber that might not be able to compete. And it's like, here we got Lyft, who started out with great ambitions, but clearly does not have the deep pockets to keep this going. So it's inevitable that a lot of these smaller companies are going to start get snapped up by people. To me, it makes so much sense that Toyota's doing it. Toyota is this, uh, I'm getting whiplash with them because on one side, they're investing so heavily in this. And then on the other side, they're basically doing nothing with electric and they're basically still all in on fuel cell and we're going to talk about that in a minute <laughs> but it's it's infuriating to me how they're just all over the map they don't seem to have a clear purpose or goal in their overall vision and if they have one they haven't done a good job communicating it so it's given me a lot of doubt and worry about where toyota is heading so even though this specific thing is like this is great to see but in the big picture, I am way concerned just because of how they're just so all over the map with what the CEO says publicly. And then they do things through PR that says the complete opposite of what the CEO said about, you know, CEO basically bashed BEVs. But then publicly they make comments about electrics might be the future. It's like, what? What? Come on, guys. Let's let's get focused and have a coherent strategy. They don't seem to have it. Yeah, I think there was an article that they were actively lobbying like lawmakers to like, hey, let's slow down on this whole EV thing. Let's, let's yeah. simmer down a little bit. And then they come around and, and talk about this. Hard to know. The problem here really is this is one of those. And this is what I always hated about engineering is you got nothing until you have everything. You don't have a product until it's finished. I can't go, hey, you know, this this code I'm writing, it's not done, but look how cool it is so far. Is it OK? But what are you going to do with that, right? You have to finish it. And with self-driving, it's such a tricky thing. Clearly, I think Lyft, like I think you hit on the head, they didn't have the funds, they didn't have the deep pockets to continue this research. Those 300 employees are making a lot of money, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> yes. And the, the, the progress could potentially be very slow. And you have to have the patience and the, the, the pocketbook to keep that operation afloat. So here's to hoping that Toyota can take this and move it into the right direction. But I kind of fear that they don't have any 
they're not like market leaders in this space. So clearly when you hire someone who's doing work outside of what you're really typically known for, which is manufacturing, like Toyota kills it with manufacturing, um, it'll be tricky, but we'll see. Hopefully good news, I guess. Uh, when you have money, I guess you, you buy people up. Want to move on to the next story? Because we'll kind of keep bashing Toyota, I guess. <laughs> this one is, this is, this is the, the better of the two stories. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. So for this one, the great Toyota zero emissions summer Olympics debacle. And if you're not familiar with the setup of this whole story, a couple of years ago, Toyota started kind of coming out and saying, yeah, you know, for the Japan Olympics, we're going to be, you know, having uh, fuel cell hydrogen buses, taking all of the Olympians and the people around the Olympic Village to and from the events. And we're going to be announcing a, a, a working prototype battery of our solid state battery. They were kind of coming out and just like throwing down the gauntlet of saying that they're kind of at the forefront of <laughs> zero emissions vehicles. And uh, not so much. Uh, it turns out either that was just a big lie or just a big PR debacle. Uh, so what's come out from when you think about it, there are hydrogen fuel cell buses that are ferrying the Olympians around. Uh, it's kind of all smoke and mirrors because each bus costs about $900,000 for a six-year lease compared to about $220,000 for a diesel-powered bus. So not a great value from that point of view. Uh, local and national authorities had to pony up subsidies to cover 80% of those costs for the first 100 buses. And uh, the fuel costs of just running the buses are up to 2.6 times higher than diesel. So it's more expensive up front, it's more expensive to run, and it's still not done because most bus terminals in Japan don't have hydrogen refueling capacity at the moment, so you have to drive those buses further just to refuel them, which is already more expensive, two and a half times more expensive than diesel. And when it comes down to the solid state battery that they had promised to reveal during the Olympics, <laughs> just ra radio silence. There's been nothing on that at all. Um, and we've talked about it before, but solid state batteries are <laughs> years away. So even if they showed something today, it's not going to be something that they could be selling next year. It's years away. So I'm not surprised they just kind of let that one slide and kind of fade off into the distance. But What's what's your take on this craziness? The one last thing I will say is there is a little bit of bashing on hydrogen for also not being a completely clean thing because to make it, it's actually a dirty process right now. But green hydrogen is coming. It's not a if it's going to happen. It's a when it's going to happen. It may not be here next year, but five years from now, eight years from now, 10 years from now, there will be 100% green hydrogen being created, hopefully at a cost that is cost competitive, but right now it's not there. So there was a lot of bashing in the article that I was talking about where it was just hammering that point home. And I think personally, I think that's a little short-sighted because today there's not hydrogen fuel cell stations. Today there's not green hydrogen readily available at cost. But eventually that could get here. But the whole idea that the buses cost $900,000 <laughs> compared to two hundred twenty, that's just insane to me. What's your take? That's really well said. So there's... Like, for example, there's a lot of platinum in the fuel cell. There's, it turns out energy is hard. Who, who would have thought? Um, <laughs> I do think there's, there's a lot of kind of showboating and a lot of really, like, you know, really cocky, a lot of hubris going into the Olympics. By the way, they had a full year more to work mm -hmm. on this problem. Um, and it's completely radio silent. I honestly thought that they would have some sort of a vehicle with solid state batteries. Because, again, you got to remember, 
we can make a solid state battery today. Will it last 10 years? No. Will it be totally perfect? Will it cost an exorbitant amount? Yes. But I kind of thought they would just, just pull it off and say, hey, this bus right here has solid state batteries. It costs like $10 million to make because they're so expensive. And also, they only have a 100 cycle life before the ceramic or the glass cracks and they don't work anymore. But we can still show you what's possible. That's what I thought was going to happen. Here's a look at a solid state battery that will go 2,000 miles. But the caveat is we haven't figured out how to make it cheap yet or long lasting enough yet. Nope, didn't happen. That was a <laughs> disappointment. And then this hydrogen thing was also a disappointment. One thing about Japan that really surprised me, I was looking at countries uh, and what percentage of their energy production is fossil fuel based. Japan is really high, as advanced as Japan is. And if you've, for anybody who's been to Japan, Japan's like operating on another level. Like the efficiency of their cities and their layouts and their shinkansen bullet trains, it is it's like a it's like a country from the future. Except with energy, they're really behind. I want to say it was over seventy percent is still fossil fuel based. Way behind the U.S. Way behind, you know, a lot of countries. Only like India, like China, and India are the only two that are kind of behind uh, Japan. So that surprised me. I think that gets to the heart of why this has been a problem for them and why they're kind of betting on hydrogen. I, I think there's there's just something where they are they are a little bit behind. My video that's coming out, by the way, Matt, I told you that one of the goals of being full-time is to get ahead of the video schedule. Mm-hmm. I'm happy to report next, this week's video is not done, but next week's video is. <laughs> and it's on artificial photosynthesis. And so if you've seen, to your point about why you should not, we should not just scrap, like, scrap hydrogen. Um, today, our solar panels are photovoltaic, the way they work. You know, photons hit these panels, knock free electrons away, and you got electricity. But you have to use electricity that instant. There's no storage built in. This artificial photosynthesis panel that people are working on, and there's some recent developments with, is different. It actually absorbs carbon dioxide from the air in this reaction, just like a leaf would and it produces hydrogen so it's far more efficient than a you know 20 percent efficient solar panel than running electrolysis this is actually kind of it jumps that step and just acts like a leaf does almost and so the byproducts are oxygen mm-hmm. and it produces hydrogen out of i mean it's I, I, this is like my favorite story maybe of the entire year we're, we're not i mean it's still years away do watch my video uh, there's a lot more in there but that's exactly what you were saying. That's the sort of a breakthrough that would completely change the, the landscape of what's possible with hydrogen. So we definitely should keep investing in it and we, should, um, we shouldn't just write it off. And for a bus, hydrogen maybe does make sense. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it could go either way on that one. So the last story, when I added to the wall, I was reading, I got about halfway through and I added to the wall and I kept reading and I was a little disappointed because they didn't really offer concrete examples. But the Mm -hmm. story is about how we solve the pickup, like the electric pickup truck's Achilles heel, which is towing and range. So, um, again, shameless plug. I made a video. If you want to understand exactly why it appears that EVs suffer with towing and stuff, I have a video on this on my channel. You can check it out. It really gets into the details exactly. I think you'd be an expert on this at, at the end of that video. But... Really what it gets down to is there's a couple of challenges. First of all, he, they mentioned here the charging time, right? Even if a, a gas car goes from 18 or 20 miles a gallon down to 10 when you're towing, people don't really care because those kinds of trucks have like 25-gallon tanks. They'll go 250 miles, even 10 miles a gallon. 
and then refill in five minutes everywhere there, you know, there's a gas station. So people who tow with, EV, uh, with gas cars never worry about this. But with EVs, we're still building out stations. And if your 300-mile range Model X or Rivian uh, plummets in, down to about 100 miles of range, there's probably stretches where you don't have charging infrastructure in place. And so does that mean it's game over for the EV? No, not at all. I think we're going to continue to see better and more efficient numbers, like we talked about with Mercedes, where the EVs will go further and further per charge. But also, we're going to reimagine how we do this problem. Matt always talks about how when you go to EVs, when you make a when you make a revolutionary change like that, there's a whole new realm of possibilities and new ways of reimagining solutions. And this is exactly the kind of example. For example, if you, you're towing a trailer, an EV trailer should be covered by solar panels. The top of an <laughs> EV trailer should just be completely blanketed, as many as you can fit. The reason is you could literally be powering some of that energy need from the sun in real time. And then even when you're parked or you're taking a break or anything else, you can be recharging the battery pack. Another way that they could do this. So here's some examples of some of the routes that proved to be very challenging based on if you can't make it to the, you know, to the stations based on range uh, reductions. Um, another solution would be that future EV trailers have batteries built in just like EVs do on the floor. And, you know, the, there's like a little plug in the tailgate that you plug into the, to the towing harness and your car could then leverage that battery pack. So it doesn't mean game over at all. We're early days. There are challenges today, for sure. If you're planning on, on towing a 35-foot travel RV, um, you know, mobile home, that would probably be tough today. But I, I am optimistic that we're going to have a really, like, well-rounded solution with more charging infrastructure, more batteries, solar, the whole nine in the next, like, five or ten years. What do, what do you think, Matt? I, I agree. It's this kind of fits right into that wheelhouse. I'm I'm always trying to hit the hammer on the the topic of don't judge things as success or failure based on what we know today, because there are challenges that we have to overcome still in some regards, especially around EVs. It's all new. It's still very new to us. We're still figuring it out. So there's still a lot of possibility for addressing this issue. My, you hit my favorite one, which is put solar panels on the roof of the trailer. It's like you have this huge trailer tra- behind you might be able to fit like 20 solar panels on top of the, the trailer and you might be able to get an insane amount of power out of that. It's not going to cover you completely, but it's going to help mitigate some of those problems. So there's in the aerodynamics of all of this stuff. It's like we need to stop making trailers these big blunt sided <laughs> objects. You're just hauling down the highway. It's like they all need to be aerodynamics has to be part of the equation for all of this stuff. So, you know, better tires, you know, better rolling resistance, you know, it's there's all of these things that we need to take into account. We're, we're going into a new path, and we have to figure these, these problems out. Today, toying with an EV might be a problem, but five years from now, 10 years from now, we might have kind of cracked the nut and made it work. So it's, it's definitely too early to say, ah, it's never going to work, even though there are people out there saying it's never going to work. So that's my take on it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I always love the... Is it the Airstream, the, the, the trailers that are really beautiful and bespoke yeah. and handmade by the same family? It's an incredible American company. Uh, I, what I didn't know is how expensive they were because they are bespoke and handmade and all that. And there's a huge wait list right now for them. But yeah, they, I mean, they figured this out years ago. That thing clearly stands apart from every other trailer out there. We've always lived in, 
I think of like the internal combustion engine as like the ultimate symbol of waste, right? We, it's such a wasteful technology that no one's ever cared about doing better. Trailers are, I mean, to be fair, a big rectangle is really space efficient on the inside. I get that. But you're towing around literally the worst possible, you know, like the frontal area and the drag coefficient is probably like 0.9. It's terrible, right? <laughs> so we've never thought about doing better. But I think with the EVs being so efficient that every little handle, doorknob, window, side mirror, we're starting to obsess about every detail. And the engineer in me, the designer in you, must just love that. This is what we should have always been doing. So I'm, I can't wait to see the future projects that, that emerge. There's a, um, Ryan from the Kilowatts was, was sharing with me, uh, I'm going to forget the name of the company. There's a company that's building a trailer specifically for EVs, like an RV. Early days, they're still working on it. But I think they called it, I'll, I'll have to mention it later. But it's really cool. There are companies now starting to tackle this problem and I cannot wait. I have a dream to tow some custom hand, like dedicated RV for EVs with my Cybertruck or some EV truck and um, and see the see the country. So I'm hoping that's still possible. Yeah, I have that same dream too. So it's like, I, I want it to become a reality. So come on guys, work faster. And let's go. On. Thank you guys so much for, for tuning in as always. We appreciate you. And don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. Hit the notification bell so you don't miss an episode. We're live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And you can always listen to the podcast version on the go at viceversa.show. As always, thanks so much for watching. We'll see you in the next one.